2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky. Hello, sir. Hey, uh, Evan is rumored to be returning soon, but we will carry on in his absence. Aaron, uh, I know who you interviewed, but I, I'd like to hear from you. How I'm very nervous because we have we have to hit this introduction in one take, and I don't want to screw it up for everyone. Uh, yes, I talked to Tim Ferriss. I took a field trip with our field recorders, and I went out uh, onto Long Island, went and saw him, spent some time out there. He has written books like For Our Work Week, For Our Body, For Our Chef. He's a blogger. He's got a podcast. He is many places at once and has a lot of interesting things to say about um, how he's developed what he does into a successful uh, writing practice. It was a week ago that you did this interview, and yeah. I feel like uh, you, you're sort of like more productive. Are you are you are you're, you being sincere now, or are you not being sincere? <laughs> you, I actually think you had a pretty productive week. Oh, thank you, thank <laughs> you. Our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter from the good people at Mailchimp. It's a simple yet so profoundly elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's from the good people at Mailchimp. TinyLetter.com. Thanks, Tiny Letter. Here's Aaron with Tim Ferriss. Hello, Tim Ferriss. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've had a lovely uh, day together. We just had uh, lunch and are uh, now uh, relaxing. Um, I would like to talk to you about, um, you, you wear many hats. You have uh, trained your body and mind. Uh, you've also run businesses of various kinds. But um, one thing I don't actually know very much about is your development as a writer. Was being a writer something you already had an ambition for when you were a kid? No, it wasn't. I never had any intention of being a writer. In undergrad, I had the intention at some point, decades later, of being a teacher. Okay. Because I had a number of coaches and teachers, Mrs. Vinsky in first grade, who got me to read the alphabet because she told me I could read books if I had learned the alphabet, unlike Mrs. Bevan. Sorry, Mrs. Bevan, but you were not good at teaching the alphabet. Uh, it was because I told you so, which has never really gone well with me. And uh, I wanted to have a similar impact to those teachers yeah. in so much as they had formed inflection points in my life, or I should say more accurately, helped guide me down one path as opposed to taking the other mm -hmm. that could have been very destructive. The intention was to teach at some point. And in fact, when I did undergrad at, uh, at Princeton, and uh, you know, got in with a surprisingly low, or I shouldn't say surprisingly low, it was a low score that surprisingly did not prevent me from getting in. I uh, had a very difficult experience with my senior thesis. And when I graduated from Princeton, I vowed that I would never write anything longer than an email ever again. Clearly that has not worked. Yeah. Uh, I did not go to plan. Uh, but I did have some training 
or I took classes, let's put it that way, yeah. often mandatory, English classes, creative writing classes. The one that I elected to take that had the biggest impact on my thinking about writing and just uh, holding certain writers in awe yeah. was the Literature of Fact, which was a seminar that I took with about 12 other students with John McPhee. And that met once a week in a group setting and then once a week you would meet with Professor McPhee to go over your short writing assignment that he would have reviewed and edited by hand. And you would walk through it together. And I, I guess remember, that's what you're paying for with an Ivy League education. You would like hope you, you'd get at least one of those. Yeah, yeah. you get edited by John McPhee <laughs> for a semester. Yeah, which was uh, was really an incredible experience. What, what kind of stuff were you writing in that class? Uh, you would say, you know, there's a statue on campus, very nondescript, weird, abstract thing. Yeah. Go write five pages on it. <laughs> I, he's better spoken than that, but it, it would be along those lines yeah, or go, sure. or go find someone you think is a sort of an unnoticeable person, meaning like an invisible person in so much as they're, uh, maybe someone who works behind the counter at a Burger King or something like that and get their story, interview them and write about them. And, and what kind of feedback did you get from John uh, on your writing? Well, he would hand our, if I remember correctly, he would hand back edited pieces in class for us to go digest and like contend with uh, cry tears over and then he would bring us in to talk about it once we'd had a chance to read through all of his notes and uh the first as first or second week he handed back the first corrected set of papers to people and he said before i hand these out i just want you guys all to know you're good writers. So I don't want you to be demoralized by what you're about to see. And then we got our work back and there was more red than black. I mean, it was just, it looked like the entire thing had been redlined. And uh, I would say that the most striking, consistent feedback he had for everyone in the class was just removing or correcting any type of ambiguous words very very good at eliminating sort of superfluous flowery language that doesn't even it's it's not only unnecessary it it isn't even well defined or well used and um, on a macro level story structure the half of his story structure outlines in class looked like some type of uh, abstract line drawing and uh, but that's how he visualized it in his head uh, so i have borrowed very heavily from that class or experimented a yeah. lot with those devices in that class but then i had my senior thesis just about killed me vowed i wouldn't write anything longer than an email and it took five years to come back to writing because i was invited to come back to princeton by a separate professor professor Shao in high-tech entrepreneurship to talk to the class because I'd started my own business after school and didn't take outside funding, which made it somewhat unique in the context of high-tech. So I came back to talk to these classes and I would always prepare notes. When I taught this class twice a year, instead of talking about how to bootstrap a startup, I talked about this concept of lifestyle design, how you could apply or turn sort of traditional career planning on its head where you have your job and career and then whatever's left over is your lifestyle or your life, you could turn it around and be very quantifiable about how you design the sort of the, the possessions, activities, interests, etc., that you want to experience in retirement, but parse them out in these mini, mini retirements and so on in a much uh, earlier fashion. So all of that stuff was put down on paper and yeah. taught in lecture form. 
And that's how I kind of cut my teeth on refining it. And I would always send out feedback forms via email yeah. to the students and find out what they liked most, what they liked least, uh, what they wish I'd talked about that I didn't talk about, et cetera. And I ended up with a large stack of these notes. When you, when you say you got feedback, like, are you actually like honing the phrases you use in that? More topics. Topics. Okay. So what I say when I give keynote presentations is I think uh, reflective of my writing style also, which is I get up and I'll give people the disclaimer. I'll frequently because there are many, uh, you know, I'll be on stage right after some fantastic speaker and I'll say, I'm not the best presenter, but my goal in this presentation is to give you very precise recommendations and actionable information that you can implement today or this week. And so I can, I can't promise you this is going to be the most riveting presentation, but I can promise you that you're going to, if you take notes, you will be able to use this stuff. And I take the same approach in my writing. So I've, I've, uh, I'll be the first to say, I mean, someone like McPhee, I mean, obviously, but even much lesser writers, I think can blow me out of the water in a lot of ways. I view myself as a teacher who happens to use text, not as, not as a, a writer per se. Uh, I'm still very insecure about my writing. I don't, I don't think I'm a great writer. I don't think I'm the worst writer either, but uh, when I read something, the Brigade de Cuisine, which was uh, a piece, I think from the seventies that McPhee wrote about this, this small, like 12 table restaurant in, in Manhattan and the story behind it. I mean, I just want to cry into a pillow because it's so just unfairly good. You know? See, I understand the development of your ideas. I mean, you have, uh, you have this idea for retirement and work and you sort of work it into a thing, but in everything, like I, I've, I've come across from you, you, you have sort of an obsession with being the best or like learning from the best and trying to, if not forever for like an instant, be at a top level. Like you've uh, done martial arts at a top level. You've, uh, you've tried to sort of train, use yourself as a guinea pig in a way to train yourself. Do you not look at writing as a pursuit like that? Like, do, do you have that same urge with writing? I do. Yeah, I do. And it's not like I want to be the best because it's it's so problematically unquantifiable. I mean, sure. I'm very much like a measurement guy. Yeah. And uh, I have no delusions of grandeur as related to writing. Maybe I have delusions of grandeur in other places, but not related to the writing. I definitely want to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, 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 uh, it's somewhat tragically comic that the more urgency you have to your writing, say with blog posts or something like that, I feel the less time you have to really hone the craft in a way when you have to constantly ship product. Yeah. I mean, this is kind <laughs> of the story of writing on the internet. Right yeah. Now, yeah. Right? And it's not like I feel that pressure, but I've become as good as I can be as a writer editing my own stuff. Hmm. I really needed, I think another classroom setting with someone who either doesn't know that I have published books or doesn't care yeah. right? because they're a McPhee and they're just like, okay, like, Anakin Skywalker, like, let me show you a thing or two, because you're four years old, you don't know what you're doing, you know? So I, I would very much at some point, and this year I was going to do it, but the timing didn't work out, do a creative, ideally fiction writing workshop so that I, I have that context switching that maybe helps me to escape some of my common tropes and just overused techniques, right? Like I love doing, for instance, in media res stuff. So I will have my, if you look at my books, they all start like right in the middle of some action. In a way I'm borrowing from screenwriting. And right? I mean, it's a very 
pull the audience in immediately with say the tango world championships in the four hour work week, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's like, I'm walking out into the world championships and you have no context. You're just like, what the hell's going on? And it's like, and I do that with four hour body, same thing with like the nine inch nails concert where I was doing air squats in the bathroom (laughs) and like all the entire debacle that ensues Four hour chef, same story. And it's very reliable for me. It's yeah. like a, it's a very effective way for me to pull people into material that might otherwise be very dense. I'm interested in how you, as someone who clearly has a heavily quantified mind, mm-hmm. how you regard uh, judging your own work and improving it. Like when mm-hmm. you go from one book to another, what does your mind do when it compares those two books? I constantly pull my audience mm-hmm. via Facebook, via Twitter via uh, email, for instance. Uh, And it is, I think, so critical, perhaps less so for fiction, but I don't know, I'm not a fiction writer, but for prescriptive nonfiction. uh, I don't care how many people buy my books, I care about how many people finish my books, and I care about how many people use the stuff in my books. And uh, of course I care. I mean, to say I don't care at all about how many books I sell is ridiculous, but that's not my, that's a vanity metric to me. It's not a, a meaningful metric that informs my work, my future work, right? But if I, for instance, create a basic Google form or a Wufoo form that has a questionnaire, mm-hmm. five to 20 questions about, for instance, people who have lost more than 50 pounds on the slow carb diet, which is in the four hour body, then that informs, say, revisions to the book. So that's a way to improve the diet. That's a way to improve. Okay, you you've taken but the, you've taken an right. insight, but part of like what the diet is, or or what anything is in a written book, is how you describe it, the language yeah. you use, the way that you format a chapter, etc. Are you able to revise that through feedback? Also, is it just the ideas that are being revised through it, or is that actually sort of your approach that gets revised as well? Both. Both. And I would say just to answer, I haven't forgotten the other question that you asked. (laughs) I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit. You asked about how, say, one book might inform the next. Yeah. Uh, Or how you might compare them or track. So comparing is an interesting word to use or thinking about the next book. So I could have written the Chicken Soup for the Soul expanded four-hour work week series, right? Four-hour work week for... Single moms, four hour work week for this, four hour work week for that. And I really did not want to get pigeonholed into that genre. I didn't want to be a business productivity guy forever. Uh, That was just the sounded like the most boring fate imaginable to me. Right. So for me, I wanted to take the risk. My publisher at the time, uh, Crown, was willing to take the risk on the four hour body. And suddenly that allowed me to have a cross. Uh, genre, sort of cross-disciplinary appeal. And the the importance of that is hard to overestimate, for me at least, because I want to be more like, say, a George Plimpton, who was very well known for doing these types of wild experiments, but his were more for sort of comedic narrative value yeah. than for prescriptive value. Yeah. Where in my case, I'm like, I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s, and then I found this person and this method and I cracked it with his help in a week. 
Right. That's huge. Like I want to share that with people. Right. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different motivation perhaps. I mean, that's an interesting distinction. Like is telling a good story, like, like a Plimpton is like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go play a football because it'll make a great story. And I'm going to tell you it is, is a good story important to you in that kind of, it's important to me. It is. It's, I'll tell you what it is. A good story is necessary, but not sufficient. Okay. It is the glue that holds other pieces together. Hmm. So I can appreciate a good story. I read plenty of fiction. I love narrative storytelling, whether and dissecting it, looking at sort of how the hero's journey might apply to screenwriting, et cetera. Like I, I can really admire that. But for what I do, like I can't out Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman. Not going to happen, right? I can't out, you know, pick pick your master of choice or even just talented writer of choice in their genre. I feel like my particular strength, as it were, is being able to take a highly complex skill and simplify it in a way that I can get people who have failed a hundred times before to succeed with something they don't think will work. So if, if your focus is prescriptive, mm-hmm. how do you know what's important? I mean, if, if your goal is to affect change on people, mm-hmm. what, what, what is your metric for deciding what are the important things to try to get people to change? I have to do research. I have to yeah. dig in and yeah. I have to try a lot uh, because what I'm doing in effect is applying the 80-20 principle or the Pareto's principle zip flaw. There are many names for it, but trying to identify the 20% of activities or inputs that will get you 80% of the results you're looking for. Yeah. Right? And there are many different ways to slice and dice that, but that's pretty much it. So if I'm trying to say, look at language learning uh, or swimming, it's like, all right, well, how, what are the, the, the buckets of activities or the buckets of focus that we can break these things down into? Okay. For languages, let's just say, all right, vocabulary, grammar, um, blah, 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 blah. So you come up with these buckets and then you you ask, what is my goal? What am I trying to do? Become fluent, not good. Totally nebulous means nothing. Like, let's get really quantifiable. Is it like to get to the intermediate level of this international test on, you know, in German and Spanish? Great. Okay, now we have something very highly measurable. And then we look at the test, we determine the parameters, what they, you know, how heavily they weight, say spoken versus written versus whatever, which is what I did when I went to Berlin and took the, uh, you know, Mittelstufe test in, in Argentina. I did the same thing for Spanish. Uh, and I was always, I always considered myself bad at languages in, in high school, for instance, uh, up until this one teacher had a huge impact on me, which came back, comes back to why I want, want to teach always. And then you are like, okay, we have grammar, vocabulary, these various buckets, how might I apply the 80-20 analysis to train for the test? And then you figure out, it's like, okay, well, from a vocabulary standpoint, it seems like they're basing it on real world materials. Therefore, I want to go figure out like what are the 2000 most commonly used words, right? I have three months to train. I'm just making this up. Like I, I feel like I can learn six to 700 words a month, yeah, which is actually really low. I mean, you could learn that in a day if you, if you put the proper mnemonic devices in place and train them. Uh, and you, you just go about it in a very methodical way. But most people don't have that degree of like ridiculous obsessive compulsive disorder. And maybe it's not a disorder, uh, but I do. Like that's how I think. Like I will go so overboard. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, The Great Courses. 
Uh, I like to learn new things uh, on my own time, and that's why I've enjoyed the great courses so far, but I intend to enjoy them even more once they launch their The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It's a new, uh, a whole new section of The Great Courses, which has over 4,600 video lectures on topics like history, science, photography, cooking, all taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. You can watch as many different video lectures as you want, anywhere, at any time. Now, they're officially coming out this fall, but listeners to this show can get free beta access by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com and entering the invitation code LONGFORM. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com, code LONGFORM. Only the first 100 people to sign up and get access, so do it right now. Thank you, The Great Courses Plus. Here I am back with Tim Ferriss. Now that you've done a lot of this stuff, you've you've done many, many things with your life. You've done several lifetimes worth of um you know, uh, serious hobbies, I guess would be a way to describe it. Do you get tired of it? Do you, um, are you, is this mania going to be with you forever? Oh yeah. 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 yeah, For sure. And it's not, I I would say that mania is a loaded term, right? I mean, it's because it has a negative connotation. One of my favorite books that I think is reflective of in part what I aspire to be like is surely you must be joking. Mr. Feynman. Sure. About Richard Feynman, uh, physicist, but also, extremely accomplished like amateur safe cracker bongo player absolutely painter later in life and he was just relentlessly curious like that was he was so driven by curiosity and i'm the same way you had these people that that lived in you know 500 years ago who were like master scientists but also like on the side were among like top level boatsmen yeah. and they were also yeah. like ben great Frank, at fencing yeah. types yeah and and there was this idea that um various scientific disciplines were new enough and small enough that someone could become a master physicist in a year because actually the body of knowledge in physics took about a year to learn of Mm -hmm. what we knew at that point and that you could then pick up you you could become a master in many things and that we've uh, accumulated so much knowledge as human beings that many people feel like being a I don't know any, word, any Expert, other word than or, renaissance person okay. is much more difficult now. You're not going to be a medical expert and a sports <laughs> and a professional athlete or something like that. And I feel like your work is sort of trying to push against those sort of limits. Well, maybe. I think that it, it depends a lot on you know the the the, the economics. In dynamic of say uh, dynamics of a planet with two billion people is very different than that of a five billion yep. person planet or a nine billion person planet. And when you inject capital into a given field uh, and you attract the mutants among nine million people, well, you're going to have a hell of a of a competition on your hands if you want to participate in that playing field, right? So, for instance, if you look at the evolution of the UFC, mixed martial arts. Uh, there are a couple of hockey stick moments, but you and it corresponds in large measure to prize money, right? Which corresponds to sponsors coming in, which corresponds to all sorts of things. And if you look at, say, the UFC from 10 years ago to the UFC now, or the UFC for the first few years to now, they are complete, they, they do not look like the same sport. And uh, putting aside the rule changes, I mean, the athletes have evolved so much. 
the people who maybe previously would have gone into like professional soccer or stayed in professional soccer, like a fighter called Jose Aldo, who's got yeah. the whippiest, nastiest leg kicks you've ever seen. Look up Jose Aldo, A-L-D-O on YouTube, if you want like your leg, your femurs to ache with sympathy <laughs> pain. But he was a high-level soccer player and then went into MMA, right? And uh, so it depends a lot on your area of focus. But I think that also, you know, if, if you talk to the best of the best of the best in anything, they're very forthcoming about how simple their craft can be at its core and how overcomplicated it gets. Uh, there's an expression, I don't know where I heard this first, but complicate to profit. So like if you have a fitness magazine, you can't just write one issue and be like, here are the rules. Yeah. You have to have a neomania to borrow from Nassim Taleb of uh, Black Swan fame. You have to have this obsession with the new and to complicate something enough that they will keep coming back to you, right? And uh, my job, conversely, is to make, uh, to make myself obsolete. The last thing I want to be is a guru, like someone people come to for answers. I want to be the person who people come to for, for better questions. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I'll change gears here. I'm sort of interested in like how you think about the format of these books. I mean, one of the things that's very clear is that you're like not concerned with people reading the whole thing or necessarily even reading in a, in a particularly linear manner. They're yeah. sort of uh, built as uh, standalone modules that you can kind of pick up. Did you have like examples of books that you were trying to emulate with that kind of a format? So growing up. My family was friends with the uh, Edward Packard, who's one of the guys who started Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, wow. Choose Your Own Adventure series. I had never thought about the fact that there is a person behind the chair. Yeah, yeah. Choose Your Own and, Adventure And he series. would test the books on kids, including myself. Yeah. And so in some of those books, actually, he would, he would put my name into some of these books as a thank you. Oh, so my name is in some of these books. That's an, but, that's an amazing boon as a kid. Which is pretty awesome. You're in a Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, my God. But that... The ability to take one book and reread it 50 times was very interesting to me. My books are designed that way. It works really well. And that's also that was also influenced by advice I got early on from uh, an agent who shall not, I won't name her because I don't want to, but she turned me down as a client. But she's, she gave me a lot of really good feedback, on, which was cool of her, on the proposal and so on. And she said every chapter should be like a self-contained magazine article beginning middle and end and i thought about that a lot and what appealed to me about that i think it makes it easier to dig into a book particularly if it's a long book when you have these modular pieces that aren't uh, sequence dependent right they don't have to be read from a to z you can jump around and you can only read one or you can read all uh, the other thing is that it was a way for me to uh, try to overcome my fear of writing. I had a real sort of PTSD type association with long form writing after my senior thesis. It was a really harrowing, terrible experience for me. And I ended up taking a year off of college because I was like all fucked up over it. And among other things, it was a real nasty situation. But by writing in a modular way, what does that mean? Well, unlike writing a novel, Maybe you can do this in a novel. It, it would seem to require all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, Nostradamus ability. But it's like if you're if you can't get past chapter two, you can't just jump ahead and write chapter fifteen. But in my books, I can, right? So if I have a chapter on, say, 
breath holding or female orgasm or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I just can't figure out the right transition to jump from like story A to story B in this <laughs> orgasm chapter. And I'm getting stressed out, right? Because maybe for two days, like no progress. And I'm starting to procrastinate and I'm like shining my shoes around the house or doing some bullshit to avoid writing. I'll be like, you know what? It's fine. I have all the notes for the uh, swimming chapter. I have all the notes for the swimming chapter. Let me just get started on that. And so I can hop around. So it's, it's for the benefit of the reader, yes, but it's also for the benefit of me as the writer. You seem to think a lot about the user experience of reading your yep. books or your writing or your blog or your podcast. You think a lot about not just like what the text is, but how people, how it comes to them, how they flow through it, what they do with it. Um, you know, you're very explicit in the books actually about saying, you don't need to finish this book. You, you know, this is, this is how to use this, which is unusual. Most people don't write a guide to how to use their books. I mean, we talked about uh, getting feedback and almost sort of A-B testing. Mm -hmm. And I understand how A-B testing can uh, improve the user experience of the book and by proxy the, the teachings of the book. Do you fear ever that having, you have a very close audience that very large and very intimate uh, audience that they like that you lose track of who's driving the ship. I mean, yeah, is there a, that the inmates will be running the asylum? Yeah, I mean, is there a danger to <laughs> listening too much to people or to Definitely. people telling, you know, yeah. I assume that people are a interested in what you did before, not what you did in the future. And they generally want you to do more things like you've done before, but in a larger sense, um, at some point, you know, your intellectual conviction could, conflict with that of your audience um is mm -hmm. that is that something you think about in keeping in such a tight loop with your yeah, audience i think about it i think about it a lot uh less so in the last few years just because i've made some decisions for myself about the best way to approach that problem or solve it when did you realize it was a problem <laughs> it well it never overly influenced my writing to be honest in a damaging way because if i had five or six subjects that I was very interested in. Japanese horseback archery or tango or swimming or you know, three gun shooting or fill in the blank. Could be anything. Uh, I will take my audience's temperature, often indirectly because I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, on these subjects. I've already decided that I'm stoked about five or six things. And I'm just trying to figure out which two or three to focus on. Mm. That is very often. That's how I most frequently use audience feedback. Or there are three titles that I can perfectly live with for anything, blog post, whatever. And I just want some outside feedback because I'm too close to the material. Like I can live with these three. I'm not letting the audience write the headline. I'm saying these are three headlines. What is your favorite? And I will use the power of large numbers to try to figure out uh, what the winner is, so to speak. Yeah. It's a multiple choice type of test. I think if people are asking, what should I do in the next chapter? I'm writing this book chapter by chapter. Then, then I think you start being driven as opposed to driving the creative process. Maybe that's not a problem, but most of the crowd written stuff or crowd edited stuff that I've seen, unless it is completely factual, or intended to be factual, like a Wikipedia, it's usually a bit of a Frankenstein's monster and not in a flattering way. I remember this moment from, from a This American Life episode where it's about a preacher who has this sort of startup congregate, you know, a, a new mega church. 
and basically loses his faith and 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 openly starts questioning whether God exists, basically, and it sort of destroys his life. I guess I wonder. I can't wait to see where this is going. I guess I wonder what, like, what would happen if you sort of stop believing in in the quantified self as a, a worthwhile life pursuit, or a lot of your stuff draws from these ideas of like recording stuff and and you know studying yourself and that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. what what if those ideas changed and you weren't interested in them anymore, or you were even to find that they were wrong? There's there a couple of things. So if if I change my mind on things, uh, I really try to be forthcoming about that. I'm yeah. not. I would never say if somebody asked me what what are you I would or what do you do that'd be what are you that'd be a weird question what do you do <laughs> what are you if, Tim if I said a scientist it would bring up imagery that I think would be a little deceptive but uh, the scientific method I mean testing forming hypotheses and testing them mm. is just a great way to approach a lot of life and it helps you helps prevent you from fooling yourself. It helps to mitigate overly emotional responses to things that can be solved other ways. It's that I don't think is ever going to go away in my life. The extent to which I record things uh, might change, but I'm okay with that. People's priorities change. Yeah. Right? And it's like if I am in college and training for the national kickboxing championships, that is my priority. Girlfriend yeah. is not number one. Like gold medal is number one. Right. right? But that is only for a contained period of time and then past that point my behaviors are going to change for sure i think that i i I mean you're right the scientific method is sort of a unimpeachable way to answer questions i think i'm wondering what happens more when the questions change and what would happen if you started feeling like you wanted to ask questions that couldn't be answered through the scientific method you know there are these there are these looming parts of existence yeah. that don't neatly unpack and that's not your job you know it's not your yeah. job to like what do that's be, like the but i'm interested in an like, example of like what? i guess that, that would be the, have you run into things where you're like i want to answer this question and i can't figure out how as oh, a writer happens all the time yeah oh no as a person yeah let's start there as I mean, a person that, that yeah. happens all the time yeah uh like what does my dog think would be, but but you know, and lar- yeah, larger yeah. philosophical life questions that don't have sort of neater um, ways to interrogate them. We can separate that out into at least two questions. So the first is, what do I do when I'm confounded with something? Right? Yes. Like how the fuck do I communicate with this puppy who doesn't seem to like acknowledge my existence half of the time, and then the other half of the time wants to like lay right on top of my body? Yeah. Uh, how do I communicate with this creature? It'll start with doing all this homework and so on. But if I can't figure it out, I do have a lot of faith that those things will be figured out at some point, right? It's just that our sort of experimental capacity or willingness or just the data set isn't large enough yet. Like people aren't pouring, as far as I can tell, I don't know, I'm just kind of speculating here, a ton of money into like communicating with dogs. You yes. know, it's not like Pfizer's putting... T- 50 million or 500 million dollars i will it. say that i find the prospect of communicating with dogs more interesting than like cryogenics <laughs> oh well i find it fascinating too uh which like is why I, would, I would i would pour my money quicker into the can we be able to talk to animals than many of the scientists oh pursues. for sure yeah me too uh but the most of the big philosophical questions i think are bad questions huh. for instance like how can i be happy is that a good question? So like before you try to answer the question, ask yourself, ask yourself if it's a good question. And for me, like 
I would ask why, why, why? Like, why do you want to be happy? Well, because of this, this, and this. Like, I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be da da da. Like, well, why do you, why do you think that being happy all the time is the solution? Da da da. Like, ask why three or four or five times. Yeah. And at the end of that, you might realize, wow, it's actually a shitty question. Like, I, it's there are undefined terms in there, or like happiness isn't really what I'm after. Like, excitement is what I'm after, which I think is is true for a lot of people. You know, what is the meaning of life? Like, is that even a good, like, is that a good question? I'm not convinced that it is. I'm uh, interested because you've, in your own life, been very successful and you've pursued success, I would yep. say, more, more so than many writers who've been on this show. Like, as we said earlier, everyone would like their book to sell. Everyone would like various things. But you've made success and sort of metrics of success a part of of your career so why is being successful so important to you well let's take a step back so not not to be nitpicky yeah. but what do we mean exactly by success like what are the indicators well when i read me- your story yeah okay you started a um, sports nutrition company yeah. and drove it to be very uh, make a lot of money yeah. per month um You've been very committed to producing these books, selling a lot of these books, building a large audience, um, turning that audience into both financial success, but also uh, a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. You're driven. I mean, you're driven. You you are driven to succeed and driven to succeed um, across uh, multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm wondering among those unanswerable questions, how do you, how do you, answer that question why like where does that drive, where does come, drive from? come from yeah huh uh i don't know honestly i mean uh, i think that if i had to guess i would say a lot of competitive athletics hmm. i mean i in anything that i do and i don't i don't always succeed clearly uh at at this achieving this but like i want to be number one and i and it's just like for me I remember I was told at one point, you know, second place is first loser. And it's such a fucking shitty way to view things in a sense, right? But on the other hand, it really cracks whip on your ass to try to be number one, right? So for me, it's like, I want to be number one. If I'm not number one, I'd rather be like number 57. Because number 57 is like, ah, wasn't a priority. I didn't really try hard. Number two is like, I just fucked up A or B or C or I didn't try that extra 5%, and that is the worst place for me. Uh, I, I don't do well in that space. My focus on like, winning is not always healthy. I think everything in excess becomes its opposite, right? So it's like freedom fighters become tyrants. You know, money is enabling until it becomes a prison of sorts for, for a lot of people, right? And I think that drive or competitiveness very similar. Like it's so helpful in so many ways until it gets to such an extreme that it becomes pathological and then nothing's good enough. If you can't be grateful for the things you have, nothing you ever get will make you happy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you're competitive, you're usually very future focused, right? There's a competition, there's a bestseller list, there's a figure it out, whatever it might be. Uh, and I think that breed, that can breed a lot, a lack of awareness in the present moment, which can affect interpersonal relationships. I know that's true for me. Um, but it's like, would I have it any other way? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's talk about the flip side of that. So yeah. if that's sort of your relationship to success, there's failure as the, the flip side of success. Yeah. And in a lot of your writing and, 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 and um, 
I don't want to use the word anecdote, but a lot of the anecdotes no, in the book, yeah. they start with a, a lot of times it's the structure is fail, how a failure became a success. Sure. Like I've, someone failed this way, often you, mm-hmm. and then something later reoriented around it and it got a success. Have you experienced uh, unmitigated failure, failure that was not later redeemed by uh, a, a, you know a, something that 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 made it worthwhile for you? I'm interested in the case of that the the thesis paper too because you bring it up like a lot across your writing. Like clearly, it was a seminal moment in yeah, your life. Yeah, it was a shitty experience. Um, that was. I don't feel like that was well. God, you know, it's, I really try to be a glass half empty kind of guy. Um, <laughs> you try to be half empty. Did I just say that? Yeah. Glass. Wow, I'm not sure how that came across. Glass <laughs> half full. Yeah. Maybe I need more caffeine. I'm also in ketosis. I talk about that a lot too. I just yeah. clicked over. I'm probably like 0.9 millimolars right now. We do we do a thing at the front of the show where I ask people what they had for breakfast to get mic levels, and the answer from Tim was nothing. Yeah. No, I've been <laughs> fasting to accelerate. Uh, ketogenesis but once if yeah if, if I were at like 1.5 millimolars I would yeah. have gotten that phrase right yeah. but yeah the half uh, glass half full kind of guy the where I was going to go with that is I think a lot of success is, is and, uh, maybe this is going to sound bad but is rationalizing how the sequence of failures that that you believe will lead to success are forming the basis for success does that make sense? Like yeah. I, I think, and I'm not, con- I'm not convinced that's delusion. Uh, maybe it is, but it's a very constructive delusion, right? Uh, and I, I don't remember who said this, but it was like success is moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Don't get me wrong. I've had some really low points. I've had some devastatingly long depressive periods. Uh, one was related to this thesis. At the time, you know, I thought like, oh my God, I'm going to be, I'm going to ruin my academic career. This is blah, 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 blah. I don't want to get into all the details of it. Yeah. If people want to see a really like, holy shit essay, which I think is maybe the most important thing I've ever written, um, you could search my thoughts on suicide. That, that was the one I was going to put um, in the show notes. Yeah. yeah that, was, that's, that was fairly recent. You wrote that. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. Um, but that gives you the full thesis story. But to, to come back to your questions, like do, was that ever vindicated? No. Like yeah. it, I never got a great grade on the thesis, right? It's like I was, I felt like unfairly judged, but on one hand it was also, on the other hand, it's also not my best writing. I mean, it yeah. was written under such duress and in such a weird time of my life. Like it was not my best work, but I was able to get over it and fucking move on with my life, you know? Yeah. And I think that let's look, let's look at it just in a, in, in a positive light. If I hadn't had that experience and I had started writing right out of college because I had this tremendous experience with McPhee, which I did, I wouldn't have had the experiences that formed the colorful stories in the four-hour work week that made it noteworthy. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Right? Um, but look, I mean, I failed. I tried to learn to swim until I was in my 30s. Like, I took classes and quit repeatedly. I could not swim a lap in a pool. I could, like, go in the ocean and bounce up and down if it was, like, in six feet of water. And then in, I guess it was my early 30s, uh, found total immersion swimming, which is amazing. Almost all swimming is taught the wrong way. Almost all swimming. Yeah. And it's true for so many subjects that have been around for thousands of years. That's the weirdest thing to me. It's like, wait, so you think you were mistaught how to swim? 100%. Really? Absolutely. So you feel like you were mistaught, not just like the physical stroke motion, but like how to deal with fear. The sequencing of what they taught was all wrong. Mm. And this is actually, you know, I've been experimenting and just realizing this with like my puppy, like I'm really actually excited 
to have this puppy for so many reasons, but I think I'm going to be a really, really good trainer because I've been doing this stuff with people, <laughs> yeah. but using words instead of like doggy treats. You should so, start using that clicker thing with people. It wouldn't be great though. When it was like time to time to stop your email, there's like a little, little chocolate would drop from the ceiling and like lure you away from your laptop. And then you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd then you'd, they would click when you get, when you like close your laptop and then you get the chocolate. Oh my I'd God. use it. I'd use it at the end of podcasts. I have, I have this problem at the very, at the end of every podcast, uh, our longtime listeners will know this. I go, well, I think that pretty much covers it. Thanks for coming in. I say that at the end of every podcast, What it should just be me just clicking the clicker at the end of every podcast. <laughs> so, but the, uh, so with swimming, right? Yeah. The, the first thing that I'll do if, if I'm looking at teaching something yeah. is identify the failure points. Why do people fail at swimming? Like yep. before we try to design the perfect success plan, you have to figure out why people fail. Like why do people fail diets? For instance, they're hungry. The food is bland. Um, they really want that pizza that is their favorite food and has been their favorite food for 20 years, right? You figure out all these failure points and then I design a system, the system for the first, say, week or first month. doesn't have to be the system for the rest of their life. It is the system to get them over those failure points, right? So, for instance, if you are a swimmer and you're afraid of drowning, you should never learn how to swim in water that you can't stand up in, up to like your waist. Now, I'm not talking about neck height. I'm talking about like four feet or less. Yeah. That should be where you learn to swim, right? And of course, you're not going to do that forever, uh, hopefully, but that's where you start because you're removing that first fear. And before you ever try to swim, it's like, you should be like, okay, let's get comfortable putting your head underwater and like trying to breathe underwater. It's like, put your head under, exhale, and then you come up and inhale and then under, exhale, come up, inhale. And, but most swimmers are like, all right, let's get started. Here's a kickboard. Go do five laps of it on a kickboard. And you're like fucking exhausted to death. And then you're supposed to do skill practice. It's fucking retarded. Like <laughs> you have to do the skill practice in that particular case, at least with humans first and do conditioning maybe later. But, uh, and there's a lot of confusion around like working out versus practicing. It's like with a swim coach, you're not going there to get a workout. You're going there to have proper practice. So anyway, I get all heated about this. Yeah, you have the, the strongest feelings about swimming of anyone well, I've met. Swim, I've well, swimming, language learning, people yeah. are like, oh, I'm just not good at languages. Yeah. Like, well, why do you think that? And then they revisit their like shitty junior high, high school yeah. teaching. And it's, and look, it's, I'm not saying these teachers are bad people. I also had a really amazing Japanese teacher who turned it all around for me in high school, uh, after I gave up on Spanish. Cause I was like, well, if I'm going to suck at language, I might as yeah. well take one that I'm like culturally more interested in. Cause I like samurai and stuff. Okay. Let's do Japanese. They're just given outdated materials and they're required to run with those outdated materials. The, the point being the, the failure points are one of the points, uh, that I was going to make is that when I'm trying to design something that will help people who have failed many times before, the first thing I do is spend a ton of time looking very intensely at why these people fail. And could I design, even if, if it's a very mediocre temporary system, something that can give them a little bit of positive feedback and greater confidence over the first week or two? That's it. That's all I'm going for. You have a clear skill at doing this. I mean, there's, uh, I don't think, I don't think even your critics would say Tim Ferriss is bad at, uh, teaching people how to do this stuff or like, there's no, there's nothing to these books, but I wonder like the world that you operate in, 
I don't really know what the world word for this world is other than sort of the marketing world. There's, yeah. there's a whole culture of, I guess what I'm getting at is like, there's a way to use that for good and yeah. there's a way to use that for evil. And when I think of sure. that for, you know, I think of things like, and I hope I'm not offending someone that maybe you know or are friends with, but yeah. like things like herbal life yeah, yeah. where you basically <laughs> not offending me with herbal okay, life. Okay, <laughs> good. But you, you know that like probably you and the herbal life guy have a, like a friend, like once you get into this world of yeah. sort of, um, changing your life online, there, yeah. there's a, there's a dark side. Oh, there's so much bullshit out there. Yeah. So, there's a ton. But a lot of that is using somewhat similar techniques about what, like what actually causes people to go out and like sell fake vitamins on the street yeah. and recruit other people. It's learning the sort of mental techniques yeah. that, um, can elicit change. That's a kind of change. I don't think people should embrace like yeah. selling, vi recruiting neighbors to sell fake vitamins, but you and the people who run Herbalife have probably studied some of the same things. Do you, do you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true for, you know, UNICEF sure, and sure. like Goebbels in World War II, right? Yeah. I mean, it's persuasion. Persuasion. And I guess I'm wondering, like, are the ethics something that come into play when you're like doing it? I mean, have you run into and, and also in the promoting of these books and the whole yeah. world of promoting yourself online and, and stuff like that? Like, where do you draw those lines? And maybe not you yourself, but someone you're doing business with, you say, or you're promoting their stuff and they're promoting yeah. yours. Like, has that stuff been difficult? Um, well, no, um, not really. And I'll tell you why. Because it takes so much effort to build a reputation. And you can destroy that in 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, you've seen... Like, basically, I mean, empires fall from one bad tweet, you know I mean? Like yeah. you can really fuck things up quickly. Sorry. Now, now the long Island's really coming out. <laughs> then, you know, the F bomb frequency goes up, but yeah. the, it hasn't been that hard to me because uh, I've set some rules for myself and it took me a while to figure out these rules because, uh -huh. you know, book publishing, book promotion was all right. new to me. Right. But, um, I don't do tit for tat promotion. So I don't promote other people's stuff much, right? Unless I really am into it, right? So it's like if I'm really into Bird by Bird, for instance, uh, by Anne Lamott, book on writing, uh, I don't get, you know, maybe I have an affiliate link somewhere, but it's like I talk about that book all the time because right. I love it. Graveyard book by Neil Gaiman. Love it, right? Yeah. Uh, there are these crazy carton cutters that I'm really into right now that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is weird. Like, you know, or the, the Kong toy for dogs is just like the most brilliant godsend and it's like, I'll talk about it. And you were one of the first authors who published a book directly with Amazon. Is that right? I was, I was, the, the, first. I was the first major acquisition yeah. with Amazon Publishing, which I knew was going to get some blowback. But man, I did not expect it to get boycotted by everyone. I mean, Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Block, you know, Target. Block. That's the thing. I expected Barnes & Noble. I thought that would happen. And I kind of budgeted my planning for that. I did not expect all the big box guys, yeah. uh, like the Targets and the Walmarts and the Costcos, who actually move a ton of books if you get selected, or uh, they head, at least historically. Uh, that was a really cha challenging period for me as well, because I put so much into that book, and it did really well. I mean, I want to say, and I'm guessing here, but I want to say it sold like 120,000 copies its first week, hard copy, which is a lot when you consider it was in... It's a large book, It was in too. no bookstores. I yeah. mean, it was basically in no bookstores. But because of the way that that gets reported, it was, uh, this killed me, man. Even to this date, this comes back to like the second place's first loser. It was fourth. It was number one Wall Street Journal, which is more, it's a, it's a, the Wall Street Journal is a more accurate 
quantitative reflection of nationwide book sales, the New York Times list should really be called the editor's picks. I mean, it's there is a component that is sales-driven, but it is it is curated uh, to the extent that I can tell, highly curated. And so it was for number four New York Times, and that just killed me. I think that there is a sort of a timeless <laughs> habit in any craft that could be called art for people to get sanctimonious about not promoting their stuff. Yes. Right? Does that follow? So I mean, people that's are certainly like, the, the, right. uh, that's really the dominant view on this show, I guess, is yeah. that there's far more non-promoters yeah. than there are promoters. Out right. There. And I would just say that a few things to that. Number one, just because you promote your stuff does not make your material bad. Right. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So based on my definition of marketing, right, the reason that my stuff have been on like the top 10 highlighted of all time list for years, the reason that they're still very often in the top 100 or 200 on Amazon, uh, almost always all three books are in the top 1,000, is that the way I ask people to measure and experiment and share their results perpetuates the books. So the marketing per se is baked into the product, into the writing. So 80% of my marketing, so to speak, and promotion is done in the writing phase. Uh, like, There's a reason I have quotes at the heads of a lot of my chapters. Quotes are really easy to share on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, in addition to the fact that they help pull people into like the lead, right? I mean, and again, people can say, oh my God, what a cheap fucking trick. That's disgusting. And it's like, well, look, Let's just say that you want, you're writing a book that is fiction and uh, science fiction. You want it to be read by only the people who attend TED. Okay. Then you would approach your promotion in a very different way or your writing in a very different way than I do. I am trying to have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people. Uh, for me to sit on my hands after writing a book would be antithetical to my entire purpose for writing these books in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think there are ways in which what you're doing does overlap with more traditional journalism and nonfiction. And, and the way that that is, that, that that happens, I think, is you're trying to answer a question and you go find experts and you ask them, what do you know? Yep. But you do it in a more experiential way than, you know, you're not looking for a quote, you're looking for the information. So I'm interested in What's your methodology for getting maximum knowledge from someone who's very smart and very deep in a field um, in a short period of time? Uh, the, the first recommendation would be searching for the person who got second place is a great way to get excellent advice quickly. Because I remember when I was working on The 4-Hour Chef, Michael Phelps was in the news everywhere. So what were the chances of me getting a hold of Michael Phelps? Close to zero right on his on his list of priorities but could i search on google let's just say you live in chicago right silver medalist swimming coach chicago when i get on the phone with someone like that i ask a whole sequence of questions and i have these written down but i will often start with you know who are the most controversial teachers in swimming that you think have something that mm. works which coaches do you really dislike? Why? Right? Um, as a coach yourself, and this is usually what I'll try to determine, like have they been able to replicate 
have they been able, have they been able in some capacity to produce mutants on demand? That's very interesting to me. And what happens when you do this? You're pursuing a topic and you talk to three people and the, the information's conflicting. How do you, because you deal with things that people yeah. have strong views about sure. that often, you know, certainly if you go online and you Googled one of these issues, you'd get 20 different opinions. Oh yeah. And your, your head will explode. I mean, you won't know which way to turn, which is what, what's happening to me right now with dogs. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's just like every fucking retard has an opinion on dog training. It's like every guy with working out, like almost so many, like every guy is like a, a professional trainer. Oh my God. It's just, it's like overwhelming. So, uh, sorry, I used the R word people. If people are offended, I'm sorry about that. But the, um, the, the only way I know how to address that is to test it all myself. That's why my books take so long. Okay. It's a lot of testing. So I'll get three, I'll, I'll have three interviews, three different chefs, very different recommendations. Like, okay, let's try it. And I'll test it out. And just because something doesn't work for me, doesn't mean it won't work for someone else, but that's too much of a gamble for me. So my first filter is if it doesn't work for me, it's not going to work for at least some subset subset of people. It's out. Then I'll test it on my friends. I'll the, 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 the filtered down, like distilled cliff notes that I think work really well. And inevitably a handful of those will be, will blow people's minds, you know, maybe, and maybe they're just like cool little tricks like cutting a birthday cake with dental floss or something which is actually really really kind of you're like what oh my god i can't believe i've never done that before uh and then some will be really confusing and if it's confusing it's gone like when i have friends of mine who are writers proofread my stuff first thing i i'm always like go through i want you to mark anything that's confusing like and, and then if there's anything you love let me know if there's anything you hate Want, they think I should cut. That's like confusing, love, and slow. Those are the three things that I ask for. I don't think you want to ask too much of your proofreaders. So I'll have them do multiple passes if they're up for it. The next pass would be like, okay, if you were to cut like a third of this, what would you cut? And uh, my general rule there is that if I have three people proofreading who are all good writers, smart people, if one person loves something to death, it stays in, even if the other two people hate it. But self-experimentation is where it all starts because if, if I can't do it, I have no right recommending it. You, you run a very like uh, lean and solitary ship. Like someone who's uh, had the success you've had could have uh, staff. And I understand that some of your work is literally about not keeping a staff and not, not <laughs> yeah. bloating yourself, but is there a uh, pitfall to yeah. doing everything yourself and testing everything yourself and, um, sort of evaluating the results yourself? Like most people who produce this kind of work are doing it in a team environment. Uh, I work with researchers hmm. who will help me gather facts. Uh, and I will often hire them myself. I will work with design teams inside a publisher, but I'll also hire designers myself. I definitely always have an editor if I'm within a big publishing house, although editor is a very uh, imprecise term. I mean, there are different types of editors, right? That's for sure. And some editors are like baseball team managers, right? I mean, they're really good at picking players. Yeah. Others are like on the field. They're, they're the coach from money. Other ball. editors are accountants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are many different styles of editors, but inevitably uh, I will be working with an editor if I'm, if I'm with a publisher and I, I mean, my friends, I help them edit their stuff and they help me edit my stuff. And, uh, there's a small group of maybe five or six guys and we help each other out in that way. I'm completely uncomfortable with 
uh, ghost writing anything in my books. Like I just, I know a lot of people who do it and they're ne they never tell their audience that they do that. I mean, I know people who have very successful blogs who have not written a blog post in years, but it's their photo and their name. Do you, does anyone else write on your site other than you? Uh, I have guest posts, but those guest posts are very explicitly written by other people mm -hmm. and I'll do an introduction, but I don't think there's any long form, say, th you know, thousand word plus stuff yeah. that's on my blog, 600 plus posts that I haven't written myself. And you don't have any urge to sort of start a, you know, the Tim Ferriss brand where you have a, the, you know, Ferriss.com, which is a site with lots of contributors trying, like, you've no, never really expanded. No, I'm not, I'm not that interested. So part of the reason I love the podcast, you know, doing my podcast is that, uh, it's the best part of writing my books without the writing. <laughs> That's how I feel about podcasts. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like interviewing all the experts. Very like, fast. oh my God, I get to interview Laird Hamilton on surfing and then interview John Favreau on like screenwriting and filmmaking. And I don't have to put it into a book. Oh my God. And like people can listen to it and take from it what they want. It's fucking great. So, uh, and I mean, I still, there's still stuff I want to write. And I think there's a tremendous power in the written word. I still think I, nothing travels and persists as fast as, as fast and as well as text. I mean, it's still has such a persistence in, in a world of ephemera on the internet. Why do you think books travel so durably? Um, what is it about uh, the written word that makes it different than these other formats? Well, it could be the written word. I think it's actually the book. And I think books persist because, for the same reason that movies persist, you can't multitask while reading a book or watching a movie and you can read an article while you have 50 other tabs open with alerts popping up and so on. But no one I know reads books in that environment. They read it on a Kindle where it's the only experience that they're reading it, that, that, uh, that they're getting soaked into, or they have paperback or hardcover and it's transporting someone very effectively for usually tens of hours, if not, you know, hundreds of hours, depending on the book, uh, into this, this sort of shared world that you create as a writer. The more transactional and the shorter content and everything it becomes on the internet, the rarer that experience becomes. I think there's always, always going to be a market for long form content always. Uh, and you, you constantly hear about the death knell and I'm just tired of it. It's like, look, it comes down to who do you want to read your stuff? And I write largely to clarify my own thinking. I journal all the time for myself in the morning to clarify my thinking, to, to put my anxieties and fears on paper to see if they make any sense when I actually shine light on them and try to intelligibly lay them out. Half the time it's just gibberish. And I'm like, okay, well, wait a sec. Like that doesn't even make sense. I also feel like text is, it becomes a companion. It's not something in the slipstream that disappears. So yes, I could have a podcast that people listen to once. And maybe they even have it on their iPhone when they travel. But the book is something that people can dog ear and it becomes this sort of living and breathing entity, this companion. I just, I feel like so many people in this, in this completely connected world where we have 
sort of digital connectivity at our fingertips at all hours of the day. I've never observed more people feeling lonely in my entire life. And books are a way for me to also make people feel less lonely. Books just have a persistence that is unbelievable if you do some of the heavy lifting in the beginning. So that's why I keep writing. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Tim Ferris for hosting me and my microphones. Thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman for editing this episode. Our intern is Molly Bain. Not to forget my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to everyone who wrote a review of the show. Some of you, we have sent an email saying you are coming to our third anniversary party. Uh, if you still feel like uh, leaving a review, hey, we'd appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.